Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out with them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, let me very quickly say that the most common application of this passage that I have witnessed in my life, almost any of you who have been in church for any length of time could preach it. For, For most of the time... Pastors, preachers will see this as a story that illustrates faith and doubt and fear. And they will focus on the faith that it takes Peter to get out of the boat and the wavering of his faith and build their sermon and their thoughts around that. I've done that myself. I don't want you to think that I'm telling you that that passage does not lend itself to that idea or those lessons, because I believe it does. But I also think we, we can fairly take this passage and take a whole nother slant, a whole different approach than what you have been accustomed to hearing. So perhaps... We will look at this today in a way that you have not thought about and maybe that you have not heard. First, I have to ask the question as I read this story, why do we do what we do? That's one question that I really gave some thought to when I read this. Why did Peter get out of the boat? What motivated him? And I have to ask this question. How did him getting out of the boat or desiring to get out of the boat and walk on that water further the kingdom of God? What practical advantage was there for the kingdom for him to do that? It could be, if you'll imagine with me, that Peter was caught up in the sensationalism of what was going on and wanted to be a part of that. The reason I say that's possible is because that is very human. We see something spectacular like that and we just compelled to want to be a part of that. If I were in that same situation, I, I would certainly be intrigued by the notion of seeing somebody or something apparently walking on water And want to do that. Years ago, I picked up a little uh, illusion of bending a spoon and then presenting the spoon completely in its original form. It was was a very uh, effective and compelling illusion. So my boys had a little friend and I thought I'd entertain him with a few cheap parlor tricks. And we were sitting at the table, kitchen table, and ready to eat. 
And I said, hey, watch this. And I took the spoon, and I did the illusion of bending that spoon. And then, of course, I did a little sleight of hand and magic and then presented the spoon, and it was, it was perfect. And the little boy said, cool, let me try that. And he grabs a spoon, and he bent it. But there was no trick to it. He just bent my spoon. So I'm looking at a spoon that looks like a fish hook. I think, wow, that didn't go over very good with this audience. You know, when we're infatuated by what we see, we want to participate. We want to try. How many of you here today, if you don't mind divulging your longevity here on earth, remember the 1950s, 1960s television program, Superman? I remember watching that first time around. Oh, you watched reruns. Is old black and white, George Reeve. I mean, the, the technology was not advanced. You, you could see the wires suspending this guy. And, but it's such a fascinating concept that literally what happened is they begin to get reports of children who were jumping out of the window trying to fly. And George Reeve, the man who played Superman, was so deeply affected by the reports of children being injured, trying to fly like Superman, that he volunteered to make public service announcements and reminding the children, remember, only Superman can fly. And sadly enough, the, the impact of those kind of things it still goes on today. Uh, there was a a couple of children, uh, brothers, uh, there's a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and this was over in China just a couple of years ago. And first, the six-year-old leaped out of the window and extended his arms like Superman, and, of course, he fell and uh, injured himself severely. And little four-year-old brother, he followed him just a few moments later, and the four-year-old goes launching out the window, and he fell too. And the tragedy of it is that while the six-year-old was injured extensively, the four-year-old died in the fall. We're influenced by this sensational stuff. So I'm wondering, what godly purpose was served by Peter walking on water, and why did he want to walk on water, and how he figured that was going to make him a better person? And how is this feat going to encourage and bless future generations? Because we don't have any need of walking on water. And so maybe, maybe some of the better lessons we learn from this story is what we learn from Peter's failure. Rather than from Peter having walked on the water or got out of the boat. And, and I can't think of a more valuable lesson that we might learn if Peter would have actually succeeded in walking on water. If he'd have gone out and walked on top and went to Jesus, what would the church do with that? How would that fit into our theology? Because things that are sensational, we try to recreate. Have you ever noticed that in church? We see things in the Bible, and then we go and try and recreate those things. There's just a very brief reference in the book of Acts to Paul having sent handkerchiefs out from himself. And supposedly... As these handkerchiefs went out, anointed from him, uh, they were given to people and people were healed. And it has been ever since that time that people have been fascinated by trying to redo that. Instead of realizing that God is a creative God and he can do anything, anytime, any way, that he doesn't have to have just a formula to do it. And it doesn't take repeating what somebody did one time in the Bible to say, well, if he, if he did it, we, if we do it just like he did, it may work better than the prayer of faith. And we, we're just drawn to that stuff. And here's, here's a word of caution. Somebody is ready to come to me and grab me after service and say, I was healed because somebody brought me a handkerchief. I, that's fine. I'm just trying to get down to the, how fascinated we become with certain things. And how we want to recreate that for ourselves. So what if Peter had successfully walked on the water? How would we deal with that? I mean, I, I don't want to be silly, but it, it, if he had walked on it, would, could we have made anything out of it 
besides just being somewhat of a circus sideshow for Christianity, a meaningless self-serving act, how would we preach? And Peter walked on the water, and you can too? Would that be the message? Or would we have... Uh, I mean, in, in the Bible, they, they, they washed feet, and, and we duplicate that. There's times in services where people have the foot-washing ceremony because they've seen that. And, and in the Bible, they... And I'm not saying that because I think it's a bad thing. It's just we, we read it in the Bible and we, we, we feel like we can do that. But on the negative side of that, Paul challenged the Corinthians and said, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, then, then, of the dead, then why do you baptize for the dead? And so the Mormon church picked that one up. And they have proxy baptism for the dead. Once again, just looking in Scripture and seeing something and, and duplicating that. And then in the, in the book of Mark, uh, there's a passage that mentions uh, about taking up the serpents and drinking the poison things. So these little churches dot the south where their whole service is, is centered around breaking out the snake box, pulling out the copperheads and the rattlesnakes and playing with those things and drinking poison and believing that their faith in God is proven by their ability to handle the snakes or even survive a bite. Or to drink the poison and survive. And uh, without trying to be funny, the, the walls are lined with the pictures of saints who lost the faith at the wrong time. So to speak. If they ever had any faith. So what would we do with it? Let me just imagine. Maybe we would have had the first church of the sea walkers. People who constantly attempt to find enough faith in God to walk on water. And if anybody ever did, they would really be the spiritual ones. I don't know what we would make of it. But he didn't walk on water. So what are we going to learn from it? Why did he get out of the boat? We can probably speculate answers on that. But I don't know that we'll ever know exactly why Peter got out of the boat. What's your motives? Why do you do what you do? Peter may have had great intentions. He had a record of having great intentions, but really bad ideas. You ever notice that about Peter? He was ready to go. He read it yesterday. Let's do it now. But Jesus had to keep reining this guy in. And you know, you know, if, if we know as a matter of record... That Peter tries to physically restrain Jesus and says, I won't let you go. And Jesus has to remind him, remind him, get thee behind me, Satan. Your intentions might be good, but your plan is bad. Or if Peter wanted to build the tabernacles up on the mountain, it was a bad idea, not a good time. And, and God himself interrupted me. He said, Peter, listen to Jesus. He has something to teach you. Peter and his bad ideas. And Peter and, and the sword thought it would be a great idea to take out the sword and fight the people who are coming for Jesus. Bad idea. So it wouldn't be out of line to think this is another along the area of Peter doing something that maybe, just maybe, it wasn't the best idea. And I know it hasn't been preached like that when you've heard it. They've always preached like, you need to get out of the boat. Well, I'm one of those who's going to say, Why? You convince me why we need to do this, and maybe I'll get out of the boat. But not just to say that we did. Why do we do what we do? Why does the church do what it does? Do we have wrong motives sometimes in what we do? Why do people go to church? Why do you go to church? I, I think there would be a lot of very valid, sincere answers to that question here today. But you realize that out of all the people that go to church, that there are people that don't have a really good, sincere motive for doing that? Some people do go to church because they believe that's a great place to seek God and nurture their spiritual growth. That's commendable. That's a wonderful reason. Some people go to church because they want to seek out fellowship with like-minded people. That's right back to the book of Acts and what they did in uh, uh, teaching the apostles' doctrines and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayer. That, that's a good thing. 
But then after that, there's probably some other motives that are not quite as noble, not quite as spiritual. Uh, Believe it or not, some people come to church to find a mate. Well, you know, it's a, it can be a fairly good fishing hole, but it, I can't guarantee you that every fish you catch here is going to be a good one. But I can say overall it's probably a better fishing hole than the nightclub or the bar. And I guarantee you if I was single and wanting to somebody to help fulfill my life, I would be shopping at a church somewhere. I probably wouldn't in, walk into a church and announce I'm a visitor here in today. You got any available women? But nevertheless, I'd be scoping out, you know. That's understandable. People do that. Some people come because they enjoy the music. Once again, it's not, not the most noble uh, motive to go to church. Nevertheless, I'm a person that loves music. And if, you, if there's a church that has great music, uh, and I go and I enjoy that, and it blesses me and blesses the Lord, it, it's, it's not like that's a bad thing. It's just kind of a shallow thing. It certainly shouldn't be the main reason we go. Particularly if they got great music, but there's a lot of false doctrine being preached. That, would, that wouldn't work at all. Some people go because they in honor an invitation. They've been, vi- been invited, and, and they consent. Some people go because, uh, this is particularly younger people, because you are honoring your parents. Your parents said, we're going to church, and, and you go. You've got to make that decision yourself one day about why you're going to church. And then some people just come because they want to be socially connected. And that's a little bit different from the fellowship. When Ann and I attended the graduation ceremony of our daughter-in-law from law school in Columbia, we went down to that graduation ceremony, And the guest speaker was a good speaker. He was an alumnus who shared some advice for the class of aspiring attorneys. And out of all the things he said, one thing lodged in my brain. He said, as a bit of advice, he said, you can never know too many people. Get involved. Get involved in your community. Get involved in your church. And really, there are some people that, they view church as rounding out their life. It looks good on their resume. I've got a wonderful family. I belong to the Rotary, and I go to this church. Well, let's vote for him for city council. That's, that's a good man. It's, it's a resume thing, you know. And people that realize that going to church can affect their personal private business that they have. So sometimes, instead of going to a little church of of 20 people, they go to a church of 500 because there's a lot more potential clients there. Now, it's not that everybody is like that, but there are some people that just have different reasons for why they go to church. Why do people call out to God? What's your motive in calling out to God? World War II correspondent Ernie Pyle, and I've dated some of you again because some of you say, yeah, I I remember Ernie Pyle. I don't remember Ernie Pyle. I only know I've read about him all my life, so I'm safe. But he is is attributed with saying, in reporting on the World War II as a correspondent, he said, there are no atheists in foxholes. Now, there are other people who have quoted that, but this traces back probably to Ernie Pyle. There are no atheists in foxholes. And I like that. However, somebody just last week who had written that uh, got severely reprimanded. I think it was a, a, a chaplain in the military got severely reprimanded for having said that because he was, he was insensitive to the atheists. And that was not politically correct, say so you're no atheist. And he got, he got reprimanded. It's getting to where you can't hardly say anything anymore. No atheists in foxholes. The... The concept behind that was is when you're down there and your life is on the line, it's hard not to call out on a God somewhere. Not to say, Lord, I think this is the end. The artillery's flying overhead. We're under heavy fire. I don't know who you are, but if you're out there, help! We're driven to that point of desperation in reaching out. 
trying to find if there's a God. And a recent analysis, as they went back and looked at the surveys of World War II veterans, that indicated that the infantry soldiers' reliance on prayer during that World War II rose from 32% to 74% as the battle intensified. The harder the battle they got, the more people believed in prayer. So why do people call out on God? Often people start generating this interest in God because their life's a mess. They've experienced some adversity, some calamity, some shake-up, some wake-up call in their life. It could have been a near-death experience they had, and suddenly they get religious. It might have been some health scare, as the doctor gave them bad news. And they just had just enough connection to church that they showed up, and they said, you know what, I need prayer today. The doctor told me something, and it scares me. So they come to church and they say, would you pray for me? It could be that somebody who in their life has gone farther than they ever imagined they would go. They've crossed boundaries they never thought they would cross. And suddenly they realize bottoming out in rebellion and sin against God. They've got to find their way back somehow. They're back here searching for God in their life. They realize sin took them a lot farther into the land of sin than they ever planned to go. And now they're searching for some redemption in their life. That's a good thing. The problem is, I, I've seen that sometimes when the storm passes, then the people are done. The motivation to seek God declines when the storm goes by. You've noticed that, haven't you? As long as we're in deep trouble, we don't mind making that sacrifice to seek God. When the trouble is past, never mind, God, next time I'm in trouble, hope you're there. But we lose our motivation. I've seen it throughout my ministry. People get in trouble, and they're, they're in church faithfully. And then as they get past the trouble, then they're less motivated. They start dropping out. Where were you? You know, how come you're not faithful anymore? Well, we're not under the gun anymore. We're not in, the storm's past. Nothing bad became of it. And I'm thankful that I had an opportunity in my life with the influence of of my parents and the people I was surrounded with to get an anchor into God that didn't teach me to seek Him when you're in trouble and desert Him when it's okay. I remember a family in the church I grew up in that that was exactly their M.O weeping and worshiping and and testifying and praising the Lord when things were going pretty rough in their life. They'd get through that rough spot and they'd disappear. They didn't do this once. They didn't do it twice. But it became their entire history. As their life went on, only serving God when there was desperation, only reaching out to Him when they absolutely had to. So why do you serve God? Why do you reach out for Him? What are the motives for what you're doing? We hope your motives are better than these things. So the question now that we have to ponder is, was it better to be out of the boat or in the boat from a more practical vantage point? I want to think about that for a minute. Let me see. I have a boat. I'm okay. I want to walk on water like whatever that is. So Peter says, don't you find this? Do you not find this curious? Am I the only one? If it's you, tell me to get out of the boat and walk on water. I have a problem with that statement. If that was not Jesus... Do you think that that entity, whatever and whoever it was, would say, don't do it, Peter. I'm not Jesus. I just want to kill you. No. If that wasn't Jesus, if that was the devil himself, he would say, come on, man. Get out of the boat. The water's fine. He was not convinced this was Jesus. He didn't have a clue what he was doing. 
The best we can say of Peter is this was blind and dumb faith. The very best we could say of him. Why is he the hero of this story? In what essence do we honor and promote blind and dumb faith? I think there's something more certain about our relationship. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. We ought to know who God is. And before you take a leap, you had better be sure and say, I don't, don't say, I think God is speaking to me and calling me to sell the house and put the family in a little camper and go witnessing for him. You think the Lord is telling you that. You think the Lord. You had better know. There had better be some conviction that you know, that you know, that you know. You can't just play these games that if we use blind faith and silly faith and shallow faith, that somehow God is up there just to make sure that we don't fail. Jesus made sure that Peter had a taste of failure. And there was a reason for that. You don't have to raise your hand. It's a rhetorical question. How many of you have heard somebody preach this and say, I'd rather be Peter getting out of the boat walking on the water than to be the disciples still in the boat? And I've been out there just like you said, Amen, brother. And then I, I get to think about it and say, I'm not sure why I'd rather be Peter out there sinking in the water. And instead of the disciples that said, you know, it's safe here. Because we've always thought about the element of faith here. If you don't get out there and exercise this kind of faith, that was not a good example of faith to, egg, to, uh, to follow. So anyway, regardless, he does get out of the boat. Now my next point is we want to consider the risk involved. And having put everything I said somewhat to the side just for the moment, I want to get down to the very act of Peter getting out of the boat, starting successfully to walk on water, and then failing with a failure of his faith. And if he took any steps and walked on water, which it, it appears as though, by the way this is written in the Bible, he did. He gets out of the boat, and he is walking on Water. This defies everything about the principles of water and gravity. He says, it's not working. I mean, it, it shouldn't work. Can you believe it? Peter's walking on water. Would you agree with me? That was Peter's hour of the greatest success. Which of you have walked on water? He did something that is according to physics, impossible to do. He walked on the water. He was in this hour of his greatest success. The risk of failure is greatest during your hour of success. So we're thinking, I want to be a seawalker. I want to walk on water. Or whatever your lofty goals are for life, or for the kingdom, or for whatever, you're wanting to do something that just is so phenomenal that people just don't often do it, rarely do it, maybe never do it. Maybe you want to be that, that one exception to the rule of humanity. And you're ready to go out and you're ready to walk on water or, or do something just so noteworthy. It's going to go down in history. And we've talked about your motives for doing that. But let me tell you something. No matter what you do for the kingdom, even if you have a great motive, even if it's a wonderful thing for you to do, there is still that ongoing risk that you're at probably your greatest risk of failure when you're doing something great like that. At your hour of your greatest success, you are at your greatest risk to fall from that point. And we have to keep our attitude right. We have to walk in humility. There's just something about too much, too soon, that spoils and ruins. And when Jesus had 70 disciples, 
And he commissioned them and sent them out to go do ministry. Some of them came back to Jesus, and it was noted by uh, the gospel writer that the first thing these people are talking about is they come back rejoicing. They're full of joy because they said, Lord, even the demons are subject unto us. They were on literally a spiritual high from their experience. How many of you have ever had a spiritual high? Be honest with me. We know what spiritual highs feel like. So you can relate to these people. They're pumped. They're buzzed. I mean, Jesus commissions them, empowers them, tells them go out two by two, tells them you can, you can cast out demons, you can heal the sick, it, just go out and do it. And it, it worked. It worked. They got commissioned, they went out, and they came back, and they're just silly with ecstasy. Oh, Lord, the demons were subject unto us, which means they went out, they found demon-possessed people, they spoke authority over them, and those demons came out, and they just stood there and said, Wow, this worked. This is some powerful stuff. And they come back and they're high. Now Jesus, when he heard them say that, had this interesting response. He says, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. And we're trying to figure out why was that his first response? His first response That was his first response because he was putting this in perspective. He was letting them know, first of all, the reason that you were able to do that, not only because I gave you the power, but the reason you were able to do that is because he is already a defeated foe. See, he's trying to help them understand. You didn't defeat him when you went out. I saw him fall a long time ago. For him, his... His whole existence is it's predestined, it's written. He's, he's a fallen creature. And when he put that all in perspective, as they were just marveling over this, he warned them, he said, I gave you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. And then he says this, nevertheless, and he brings them back down off their spiritual high and tells them, get your feet on the ground, because he said, this is not the kind of stuff that you should be rejoicing over, but we do all the time. We rejoice over the spectacular, over the sensational. We like spiritual highs. Just admit it, people. We like to get tickled. We like the Holy Ghost doodads and the goosebumps. We love it. And some people are so addicted that they're going from church to church trying to find out where that little glory is falling somewhere. Because they want to feel the heavenly tickles. And Jesus addressed this very issue with these people, which we can learn from this if we're wise. And he's saying, that's not the reason you ought to be rejoicing. Let me tell you why you ought to be rejoicing. And, you know, you're bracing yourself for something really spectacular. It's like he's saying, don't rejoice just because the demons are subject unto you. And you fill in the blank. Rejoice because next time you go out, you're going to raise the dead. Next time you go out, you're going to see miracles like you've never seen before. You haven't seen anything yet. Next time you go out, and he's preparing them. But what's he say? It's a huge letdown. Don't rejoice just because demons are subject unto you. He said rejoice. And their anticipation is building. Oh, boy, what's this going to be? Rejoice. Because your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And their countenance is... It becomes so what to us. And it shouldn't be so what. If we are living our lives so hooked on the fantastic and the supernatural and the sensational that the only thing that moves us is to find a church somewhere where there's a lot of bubbling and activity and the troubling of the waters and the flowing and the screaming people, but we can't come to church and sit there and marvel at the grace of God saying, I am full of joy today because my name is, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's shouting material. 
That's the kind of thing that ought to have us motivated 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and not just living from some miracle to miracle to miracle. But Jesus saved me. He saved me. He saved me. That's what's worth shouting about. And that's where you live your Christianity. You live your Christianity on what would seem mundane, but it's not mundane whatsoever. Because when you speak of the salvation, you're telling the story of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb, the sinless one, slain for all the sinners of the world, who took the sins upon Himself, who was thrown into the tomb, and hell thought they were done with Him, but He rose on the third day, and He gained us the victory, just because you're saying, He saved me. There's a whole story behind that that is far better than the miracles you might be longing to see. And I think when we get enamored with just God, just enamored with the power of salvation, then and only then are we truly mature enough to be ready for the miracles that God wants to work through us. But if we're bored with our salvation, you're not going to go any farther. So I think you need to practice being excited over what God has already done for you. And quit looking for some church where it's happening. It happened right in here a long time ago. That's where you rejoice. Now Christ is not condemning joyous excitement. We know that. He's just expressing, addressing the misplaced priorities that we develop. Train yourself not to live from one emotional high to the next. Train yourself to be in awe of God on a daily basis. It doesn't take much effort to rejoice when you're all pumped up. But it does take some effort sometimes to rejoice when you wake up and you realize that this day is not a whole lot different from yesterday. Same old, same old. Walk into church, same old church. Same old preacher, same young preacher. And we become overly familiar with the power of God. We're no longer in awe. Remember that chorus we used to sing 15 years ago? I stand, I stand in awe of you. Remember that? What happened to the awe of being in the presence of God? We can't lose that. Now, back to my point. The risk of failure during the hour of success. And Jesus warned his disciples when they went out and they had this success and they got on this spiritual high. He warned them, don't you get your head in the clouds over these things. And the reason he was warning them about getting so heady about this is they had to remember it wasn't them anyway. It was Jesus. It wasn't that they were stronger than the devils. Jesus gave them the privilege of doing something. We keep it in perspective. It's not you. It's God. And the reason he was warning them is because anytime you are having some success in life, in ministry... The first temptation is to either be lifted up with pride or to forget God or to have a complete failure. We've seen it happen to pastors, people in ministry. We've seen it happen where the pastor was, was leading a tremendously successful church. And somewhere along the line, they got too big for God. And they left him behind. And soon the news is reporting the scandal behind this facade. He was the pastor of a church, but he was caught doing this. Why? Because the risk of failure is so great when you're on that success. And I wonder if that's the reason that God is so stingy with all of these success stories. Because he finds so very few people who can really handle what it takes to be at the top. 
You look at the Bible, and just quickly let me mention a couple examples that you might remember. King Uzziah, who was basking in prosperity and power in his reign over Israel for a half a century, 50 years of prosperity and success. One day he just decides the the priests are supposed to go into the temple and burn the incense. But one day this king, after 50 years of all this success and prosperity, he says, I'd kind of like to do that. I think I'll go do that. And all of his council, they're aghast. They're saying, King, you can't do that. Don't go in. That is reserved for the priest. He said, I'm the king. I'm successful. Look at me. I can do anything I want. I'm the most powerful man in the kingdom. If I'm going to go burn incense, I can go burn incense. And he goes in there and he burns incense. And the minute that he defies God, he is stricken with leprosy because the price of being successful is you are at great risk of failure. You think of David's story, who went from being just a simple shepherd boy that knew what it meant to be filled with the power of God and slay the bear, slay the lion, slay the giant. I mean, this guy is on the road to success until he becomes the king. And the people love him. He is popular. He is powerful. He is wealthy. He has it made. Except he decides he wants to murder another man and take his wife. Because it's so risky to fail at the height and the pinnacle of your success. God said to Solomon, he trusted him. Anything you want, Solomon, ask anything you want. And out of all the things Solomon could have asked for, he said, give me wisdom. I can rightly judge my people. And we're so impressed that Solomon had his head on straight. But that's the last we have any record of Solomon have his head on straight. As all of his success, his fame, this man that spoke great wisdom, that built this beautiful temple, that royalty traveled from across the sea to come and see Solomon in all of his wisdom, to see that temple. It was a world uh, uh, attraction. And his fame spread throughout the land. Everybody wanted to see Solomon. And he just goes downhill and downhill and downhill. Ends up being a man that left a record of having 700 wives, and that wasn't enough. He had 300 more girlfriends. They were all in the stable. They were his sex partners. And this is the man that had all the success in the world. And what a sad story is told of his failure. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Babylon, the great empire, the most powerful empire in the world for a period of time. Nebuchadnezzar had need of nothing. The, the things that they had developed in Babylon, the sophisticated irrigation system that allowed them to turn the desert into uh, uh, rich crops, and, and the irrigation system that brought fresh water into the city, the aqueduct system, the, the sewer system, everything about Babylon was just so technologically advanced. They were head and shoulders above the rest of the world. Nebuchadnezzar himself, as he oversaw the building of the hanging gardens of Babylon that were so breathtaking, so beautiful, so magnificent. They, they, today they are listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People were just awestruck to see the hanging gardens. And Nebuchadnezzar goes up on his rooftop and he looks out over his kingdom and he sees everything that he's built. And he says, look what I've done. Look what I have done. And he couldn't even take another breath. The Bible says while the words were in his mouth, he couldn't even take another breath after proclaiming his own greatness that God brought judgment against him and said, seven years, you're going to go mad. And he did for seven years. He wandered about like an animal. He ate grass from the ground. The king couldn't talk. He couldn't communicate. He became an animal. His hair grew, his fingernails grew like claws, the Bible says. And he was insane. The man was mad. Seven years of watching after this king until he got done. And suddenly, probably with a mouth full of grass, he gets his, he gets his sanity back. And he stands up and says, uh, what a ride. <laughs> but he had a whole diff- different perspective on life as he realized... You just don't take the glory from God. You don't rob him of his blessings. And he didn't say, look how great I am. He said, no, look how great God is. It's so easy to fall when you're on the top. 
And it's not just kings. It's not just priests. It's not just ministers. Every person here today, you're subject to ruin when you let your success go to your head. And maybe you're trying to do something great for God in the kingdom. I hope God blesses you. I hope you can handle being blessed. But maybe you're not doing anything particular for the kingdom. Maybe you're just prospered in your life. You've got a great job. You've got money in the bank. Everything is comfortable for you. You've got a wonderful family. And you're going, are you staying humble before God? You realize how easy it is to fall when you've got everything going your way? How easy it is just to slack off. And how wonderful it would be for every one of us if we just learned that secret of remembering how to stay humble before Him. We all want to be sea walkers. We all want to have that success. That's where the joy is. That's where the thrill is. But you can't handle it. Sometimes your faith breaks down. Sometimes your reliance on God breaks down. Sometimes pride comes in. But it's real hard to handle success. My final point, what purpose does failure serve? So rather than trying to learn the lessons of great faith that Peter failed at, Peter failed at it. And say, now if we can do better than Peter, we can really walk on water. We can do anything in God's name. But why don't we study what really happened to Peter? He failed. And it went down forever, recorded he had a great start, and then he just completely lost it. What purpose? Why would God allow failure? Well, Jesus could have bolstered him. He could have helped him to get all the way, and he didn't. You have to understand the design of this story is that Jesus allowed failure. Now, I think it is incumbent upon us to learn why. Jesus allowed that because he knew there was a greater lesson to be learned in that than had the story been told otherwise. First of all, when you have failure, you realize that there is a great manifestation of God's grace. And the enemy comes and he wants to use that as an opportunity to defeat you. And there are people here today, you've had spiritual failure. And the enemy wants to beat you over the head with it. I'm here to tell you that one of the greatest things you can learn from your failure is God's grace. How great it is. How no matter what you've done, where you've been, what you've said, that there is grace that can hit the reset button and say, let's try it again. There's still time to do something right for God. Yesterday's gone. Old things are passed away. Let's forget it. Let's just get on with life. And if you're still carrying guilt from something in your life, I'm telling you, you don't have to. God's grace is sufficient for you. The second thing I want you to know about failure is we tend to make the necessary adjustments when we have failure. We are forced to rethink everything. Failure is a reality check for us. It's a wake-up call. We discover our mistakes, and we make the necessary corrections to those mistakes, and then we go on. So thank goodness we have these moments where we had a great idea, and we pressed forward, and it fell flat. And we have a couple of choices available to us. We can either at that point become greatly discouraged and say, I'll never be able to do anything, I quit. I'm not going to try again. Or you can say, well, that didn't work. Just like some of the great inventors like Thomas Edison who who failed to create successfully the light bulb. Hundreds, hundreds of attempts as he fashioned it, fired it up, didn't work. And philosophically, he just found... so to say, a thousand and one ways not to make a light bulb. But he impressed beyond his failures and found success with God. And I don't deal with failure very well. Maybe you deal with it a whole lot better than I do, but I need the reminder from the Scripture. It's the time to make adjustments. 
We don't keep doing the same thing over and over again. We all know that's insanity. But we make the adjustments. And we do it differently next time. And the final thing is, the purpose of failure is to compel us to reach out for God. And Peter's out there and he's walking and he begins to fail. And the first thing so naturally that comes out of his mouth is, Lord, save me. Now, it didn't take much thinking to put that prayer together. It was right there. He's in trouble. He doesn't have hours to deliberate. He's got moments, seconds, and his cry is, I need you, God. I need you, God. I need you, God. You've been there. Your strength is gone. Your best plans have fallen flat. Your sources, resources have dried up. You find yourself overly committed. You're overwhelmed. You're bitten off more than you can chew. The hour is desperate. And there's no time for negotiation. And all you can do is put together this simple little prayer. God, save me. I'll do confessions later. Save me now. You know what it means to crucify your pride. And in complete humility, just call out to God. You know what it feels like to sense his strong hand reach down and lift you up and set your feet on some place solid. You suddenly realize all of your own lofty dreams and your high expectations and your grand plans can come crashing down in a moment. You realize more than ever, you're never more than a heartbeat away from eternity. You understand your own mortality, your own foolishness, God's magnificent grace, and you reach out to him. Because you know He's always there. So we have these moments of failure in our life where God could have prevented it. You know He could have. But He didn't. Because He knows it's good for you to taste a failure once in a while. To remember that you are you. And God is still God. And you're not Him. Worship team, come.